Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. This week, we bring you an interview with Nikki Bloom. Nikki grew up in the Bay Area and loved singing and music, but never thought about doing it professionally. Then in her late 20s, an opportunity came and she quickly started a band, wrote a ton of songs, and became a touring musician. That band, Nikki Bloom and the Gramblers, put out a couple albums and toured consistently. But then in 2017, her life changed drastically and she moved to Nashville and started over, this time as a solo musician. Her 2018 album, To Rise You Gotta Fall, was direct and emotionally raw and represented a new chapter in her life. Along the way, she's been able to collaborate with some of her heroes, most notably Phil Lesh of The Grateful Dead, which we talk about in the interview. After our conversation, you'll hear Nikki play Jet Plane, To Rise You Gotta Fall, and Love to Spare. The last song, Love to Spare, is an exclusive performance of this unreleased song. And as always, there's a Spotify playlist for this episode in the show notes. Before we get into it, we want to ask you a quick favor. We hope you're enjoying this show, and if you are, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show, and we appreciate you helping to spread the word. Now here's my interview with Nikki Bloom. All right, I'm here with Nikki Bloom. How are you, Nikki? I'm doing good. Just uh, keeping warm in this crisp Nashville winter weather, which I love. Today it's sunny, but the other day it was snowing. So just trying to get in the walks when we can and no complaints. Well, thank you for joining. I know I want to go back to to sort of where you grew up because you grew up in California, right? I did. I grew up in Northern California and lived there until I ended up moving to Nashville almost four years ago. So this is your first exposure to like seasons. You've toured a lot, obviously, but in terms of living in there. Yes, exactly. I mean, Northern California, we have a little bit of seasonality and, you know, I would go to the mountains and go skiing my whole life growing up. So, but yeah, in a more traditional sense, Nashville is the first place that I've lived that has very distinct seasons, which is been really awesome and really nice and none of them are too extreme except the summer in my opinion yeah which um usually i'm gone for because i'm touring but this summer i was here and i really got to experience a full nashville summer and i yeah. made it i did it you made I, it i i made it I, made I wasn't it. sure i was going to but i did <laughs> he had no option um going back to your early years what do you remember about kind of early musical memories Early musical memories for me had a lot to do with my oldest brother, who was into all kinds of music, uh, predominantly the Grateful Dead, which so from an early age, I kind of started getting that music infused. He's 10 years older than I am. And he was really into reggae and he was really into like Zeppelin. So I, I sort of had this sprinkling of his taste. And then, you know, my dad driving up to the mountains, like I was saying earlier, we went skiing all the time and he'd always play like Elton John um, or Crystal Gale. Um, and my mom was really into to soul and, um, and then just like 80s and 90s radio. So I had a very broad swirl of musical influences 
as a child, but um, did not come from like a musical home. Uh, my brother, my oldest brother, he played guitar. And that's kind of how I started getting interested in, in playing an instrument. But we weren't, you know, like a, a musical family that sat around and played together. When I hear people that have that experience, I'm like, oh, that sounds so nice. <laughs> so idyllic. So you weren't one of these child prodigy musicians who like picked up instruments at age four and started learning right away? No, no, not at all. I mean, I didn't even get my first guitar until I was 17, almost 18 from my brother. My dad, my brother got it for me kind of as a parting gift, a graduation present. And I brought it to college and I started playing it. And, and when I figured out that I could learn songs that were just two chords and I could pretty much like instantly start playing a song and accompany myself. To me, that was like my first taste <laughs> of like, this is magic. This is like magical. That was sort of like the beginning of really trying to, to do it in a real way. Yeah. You know? What was your relationship like with music up to that point? Like, did you have any desire to make music or were you just a fan? I, I loved listening to music as a kid. And I actually had like a like a cassette player, you know, and I'd like play a tape on one track and then put a blank tape in the other and like record harmony to it. From a really early age, I didn't really know what I was doing. I knew my bathroom sounded really good, the tiles in it, and like this corner of my bathroom. Like I loved to sing. I loved like, you know, Whitney Houston's voice. And I remember one of my biggest like impactful moments was when she sang the national anthem. And mm -hmm. there's actually a really embarrassing recording that my brother took of me singing the national anthem in the shower. And I remember he, he was listening to headphones on a road trip. We were in the back seat with his friend and he was laughing. And then he put the headphones on his friend and his friend was laughing and he put the headphones on me and it was me singing the anthem. Oh and I God. was mortified so that kind of curbed my uh, my singing for a little bit at home, but <laughs> I was pretty private about it, um, you know. And then as I got older, I became a little bit less private about it because I went to college and you could start drinking, and that of course um, helped, you know, lessen my inhibitions. So. Yeah. Um, but it was a it was a slow it was a slow build for me for sure, and I, I really had no um, no thoughts of doing it in any way that was serious. Was there something that happened during those college years that put you on the path you're on now? You know, I would I would play guitar in my dorm room and drive my roommates crazy. And, you know, maybe at the occasional party, get loose enough to like play a song for people. Um, it really wasn't until I was in my mid-20s um, and I found myself at an after party. And there was like a guitar getting passed around and I sang a song and there happened to be um, my now ex-husband at the party who is a musician and producer and he heard me singing and he was kind of the first person to be like, you sing, you should do something with that. You should let me record you. And that really was kind of the first time that I realized it was something that I could pursue. And, you know, his opinion meant a lot to me. I had been a fan of his music for a long time. And so it was sort of a pivotal moment for me, for sure, of, of being like, oh, somebody is saying that I, that I'm good at this and it's not my mom. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I should try this. <laughs> and were you writing at that point or did you start writing then? That's about when I started writing. Um, yeah. W with his encouragement that that's about the time I started writing. So, you know, it happened late for me. I think I was 25 by that point. And 
it was a steep learning curve for sure. Still kind of is actually. <laughs> I wouldn't know where to start, like in terms of writing a song. Like, did you, you, you mentioned the two chords being <laughs> a good aha moment, but lyrics, I mean, did you dive in? Did it, did it come naturally? Um, the first song I wrote is actually, um, ended up being the title of my first record, which is Toby's song. And it was about my dog who was just with me all the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's like the purest kind of love and, and the most examined relationship at my life at that time, we were spending all kinds of time together. I was at the time working on a ranch and he came to work with me every day and he was my best friend. So, and, and it also felt safe. It was like, you know, he was in the room with me and I could kind of just look at him and yeah. um, it made it easy. It, it was an easy first topic for me to kind of, it was a good gateway topic. I'll say that. Were you trying to communicate anything specifically with the song or with your early writing or were you just like, I'll just write and see see what comes out? I sort of found this similarity between um, the relationship I had with my dog and like also like romantic relationships, right? Like I, I started to realize that when I was home, my dog really didn't care about me. But when I would leave is when he would start to show like affection. And I remember thinking that's kind of like a guy, actually, you know, like as long as you're there and you're present and you're kind of like doing the stuff, you sort of go unnoticed and perhaps even like a little underappreciated. And then when you leave, suddenly the story changes and it's, where are you going? What are you doing? You know, the missing starts happening. Yeah, yeah. Had you been like writing? Did you do creative writing and stuff growing up? Um, nothing Nothing beyond, you know, like the curriculum that, that school had you do. But I always loved writing and I would write my mom poems and she... God bless my mom. I mean, she she encouraged me in everything that I did. Whereas my dad was a little bit more like, mm, you gotta you gotta tighten this up. You gotta get better at this. So I had you know the yin and the yang with my parents' encouragement and also um, encouragement to keep going and an encouragement to to continue to sharpen my my skills. So yeah. So what happened after you and Tim met? Did you immediately start recording stuff? We pretty much did. <clears throat> I remember he sent me a list of songs and started listening to those. I, at the time I was living in San Diego and he was living in San Francisco. And I kind of thought it was, you know, he heard me sing at the party and it was going to be over and forgotten. I had at that point in my life learned not to get my hopes up, especially around music and musicians. Um, but he did follow up and I did end up going to San Francisco Um, And we did record early on. So yeah, that promise was kind of fulfilled and it was good. I was, I was really nervous, but I'm really good at kind of hiding nerves for better or worse, but it set the tone of what it was like to be in a studio. And his studio at the time was really uh, not intimidating. It was just his living space. And um, it was a good introduction to, to recording and also to singing in front of somebody that I didn't really know very well. Well, you just said you're good at like hiding your fears, but it sounds like you had some kind of like secret plan to to make music. <laughs> I think maybe <laughs> subconsciously. I don't know. You know, I know that I have always loved it. Music is captivating and always has been to me. And it, musicians are always seem like they're having the most fun. And, you know, I would always want to be at the after party or go, you know, I'd go to shows and I didn't want to be in the mm-hmm. audience. I wanted to be backstage or on stage. I thought that maybe I'd be more in like, you know, I don't know, music journalism or something like that. But 
I certainly didn't think that that I would be on the stage, but I love to sing and I love to sing harmony. So any chance I would get, and you know, the older I got and the the more uh, confident I got in singing in front of people and and expressing myself in that way. But um, it took time, for sure. But I do. I think subconsciously, I always, I always loved it, though I didn't, you know, consciously have that like intention. You know, I wasn't one yeah. of those people who was like, I've always wanted to be a singer and I was going to make it happen. And, you know, that, that wasn't me. It was kind of like, yeah. Oh, I love to sing. And, you know, if people would sort of like usher me or, or encourage me, I, I needed a lot of that to kind mm-hmm. of make it feel like I was worthy of it. The first album came out in 2008, right? Yes. Was that a pretty big turning point? Um, it was. I mean, I, I put out the record and I remember we played a show in San Francisco and that's when I put the band together, the Gramblers, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because I wanted the show to reflect the full band record. And, um, you know, at the time, I think I was teaching. I was an, a teacher for Outdoor Ed for the um, San Francisco School District. And you know, we put it out and played some shows, but my life sort of continued to go on as normal until we made another record. And I released that in 2012. And I did do some touring in between those two records, mm-hmm. the first and second record, um, as a duo with my friend, Darren Nay. And we would open a lot for Tim and Tim and Jackie Green had a, a duo called the Skinny Singers. And we would open for mm-hmm. them a lot, but it was very informal at that time. In 2012, we put out my second record, Driftwood, and I remember with Tim's encouragement, just you have to start touring. And I remember being terrified, being like, what does that mean? I don't even know how to do that. How do you start? It was was so scary to me, but he really, um, he was adamant about me taking it on the road. And that's when um, Joshua Knight, who is still my booking agent at Paradigm, stepped in and, and became my agent, which was so cool of him and and still is so cool. And and he's also the Dusters agent too. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But he was really my first advocate in a real way, kind of like outside of Tim and started booking me shows. And that is what it takes. I mean, that's what it takes. And so we started to feel some momentum. I started to feel some momentum in, in, in 2012, especially in San Francisco, you know, where I was from. So yeah, that, that slow build started, I would say in 2012 after the second record. And in between those two, you were teaching and playing music on the side. And did you feel like you were headed toward a life of just like teaching and playing music on the side? You know, I wasn't sure. So I had a full-time teaching job, like I said, for the San Francisco Unified School District, teaching outdoor ed. And as I started doing more and more music, I realized I couldn't keep um, like a full-time teaching job. And so then I started substitute teaching. And so I could take jobs as they came and it just really happened organically. Like I had to start turning down teaching gigs because I had music. And I remember, you know, the scale tipping towards music and ultimately taking the last substitute teaching call and being like, that's it. No more. I'm done. (laughs) I'm doing music. But I, you know, I'm not one to jump in the deep end in a, in a literal sense. And, and, um, in, in every sense, you know, so that careful planning and wading into the shallow end um, slowly was the way that I entered into music. But, you know, at some point 
you really do just have to kind of pick your feet up off the ground and swim into the deep end. Yeah. I talked to a lot of young musicians who are trying to figure out their path. And um, it seems like everyone feels like they have to dive straight in. Because if you don't, I think the perception is you can't like have a full-time job and be a professional musician because of touring, because of writing. I mean, it just it's like two careers, right? But right. knowing when to pull that trigger or, or to set that real job down <laughs> to yeah. pursue something yeah. that's got to be like a little bit nerve wracking. Were you feeling confident about that? I mean, I think that's why something like, you know, I did have a teaching profession, but then I scaled it back to substitute teaching. So I did have some flexibility there. You know, it's still scary for me. There's no guarantee. There's no, um, I mean, as we've all experienced in this last year with, you know, with the pandemic, it's like, if we've, if we've all collectively realized anything is how much is out of our control. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the lifestyle of a musician is very, um, it's very up and down and unpredictable, right? So it's like, some months you make more than you need and other months you barely scrape by. Um, and I think it's just learning how to trust that it will balance out. Your frame of mind is really important and staying positive and saying yes. The power of yes is very important because one yes leads to the next and the next. Um, but it was definitely an uncomfortable position for me to be in. I came from you know, a family of, of structure and, um, you know, balanced books and mm -hmm. responsibility. And um, it, there was a, a little bit of me that just felt like I was being irresponsible in a way. It still is, is a practice for me. You know, I always have these yeah. like lofty dreams of like, well, maybe I should go back to school and do this, or maybe I should, you know, but then when I really think about it, I'm like, no, <laughs> this is what you do, Nikki. This is what you do. Yeah. And you love it. <laughs> Convincing yourself. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, it's scary to be out on your own, basically, right? I mean, that's like out on a limb in a lot of different ways as a musician. Exactly. And as you know, what I'm learning in my own career is you move through um, a lot of different like iterations of yourself and renditions of yourself and people you play with and connections that you have. And if you can allow to just go with it, that's going to be the best thing because fighting against it, it doesn't allow for the channels to flow. And, and I, I really do think that there's a lot of letting go, trusting the universe, setting intentions, trying to manifest things that you want to happen for yourself, um, but certainly not holding on to anything too tight. In 2012, you started doing the Van Sessions videos mm -hmm. that really like caught on, and and there's there's a bunch of those, including a Hall and Oates um, cover that I think was like particularly popular. What was the inspiration for doing those? Like I said, in 2012, when Driftwood came out, um, my second record, and and Tim was really adamant about me touring it. I found myself on the road a lot, and we were touring a lot. Um, and in California, you know, the drives are long. Um, it's not like being in the South where you can 
hit your markets three, four hours apart from each other, it's like the drives are long. And yeah. we got bored. And my bass player at the time, Steve Adams, who is an amazing musician and, and still a dear friend of mine, he was like, we should just like, let's just like learn songs. And we have, I have a ukulele, you know, oh, let's play, you know. And it was a way to pass the time. And then we started recording them and putting them on YouTube. And um, for us, it was just, it was a way to pass the time. And it was also a great study of song, um, especially pop songs, songs that are seemingly simple. And then you kind of start digging into them and you realize like, oh, you know, it was almost like theory in a way. You're learning the structure of a song. You're learning progressions and all different kinds of things. I think as a band, it was really good for us to examine songs, see the structure of songs, see what makes a good song a good song. And then also it was just nostalgic. It was like mm -hmm. we did songs from our childhood. We were all around the same age except for Tim. Darren, my guitar player, and I have known each other since we were six. And so we had a lot of like commonality and what we grew up listening to. We listened to the same radio stations. So it was really fun on a lot of levels. And then people started enjoying them. And not only people, but, you know, the original artists in the John Oates case, you know. Yeah. And then, of course, that became exciting unto itself. And the rest is history. Yeah, that's cool. John Oates is great. He was actually, he was on the show a few months ago and he's a, a really, really nice guy. He's so nice. <laughs> you know? He's so and grounded. He, I mean, and I, I just find him so inspiring and on his journey through, Yeah. through, I would love to, I can't wait to listen to that podcast. Yeah. At a couple different times, he just packed up and did something different, you know? It's so <laughs> inspiring. And it's, it's, it's really scary. I mean, what I will say is music and anything that's entrepreneurial or anything where you're betting on yourself, like it takes a lot of courage to keep going because <clears throat> ultimately you are the person who's going to care the most about what you do and you kind of just have to keep the faith. And, and people like John Oates are inspiring to me because, you know, you can keep going and you don't have to stay tied to one thing or one, you know, uh, vein of, of music, you can really do whatever you want. Um, and that's the beauty of it. So a lot happened between the 2012 album and the 2018 album. Um, but I want to ask about this sense of place that we were just talking about, because I've talked to a lot of musicians about this, the physical place where you are and how it changes your music. Because it seems like, like we talked about at the beginning, you were basically California based your whole life. And then now you're in a whole different place. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that journey happened? And then we can talk about what it's like being in Nashville making music. Sure. Well, I was living in San Francisco, which, man, it's not the easiest place to live and do music, not just because it's hard to tour out and around the West, but also because when you live in San Francisco, you have street cleaning like every two weeks. So, um, it, you know, in San Francisco's expensive property taxes are high. There's a, there's a number of things, but I love it and it's beautiful. Um, but after a lot of change for me personally, it was time for me to leave San Francisco. So I actually moved across the Bay to Sausalito for a while, which is where I wrote a lot of my 2018 release to rise. You got to fall that time I was going through, you know, like I said, a lot of personal changes and growth and pain and hardship divorce. Um, I was really reckoning with, um, what I wanted and my truth and, and the energy I wanted to surround myself with and, 
I really, really, really was wanting a fresh start, like from everything, because I was in such a swirl in so many ways that I couldn't, I couldn't settle in and sort myself out. And I started coming to Nashville on writing trips because, you know, I, I write a lot alone, but at the time my predominant writing partner was Tim. And with that relationship ending, I knew that I wasn't going to have that, that writing partnership anymore. And at the time my management suggested that I come to Nashville and they could set up some meetings for me because that's what people do in Nashville. And I was like, Oh, that sounds cool. And so they set me up here and I ended up staying actually at my friend, um, Langhorn Slim's house, who I fell in love with the neighborhood. I loved co-writing with, with people planned co-writes. I just mm -hmm. thought it was like the best thing ever. I mean, I started to experience what that was. And it's like, wait, you can book an appointment to write a song with somebody and then have it feel like a therapy session and leave with a song and it's free. I was just like, what, <laughs> what is this place? And I started coming to Nashville in the spring, which, you know, middle Tennessee in the spring is like basically Disneyland. It's like birds are chirping and the dogwoods are turning pink and everything's lush and it's like perfect weather. So I was just like, Oh my God, this is, this is beautiful. And I just started kind of looking around at, at houses here. And I found a house that's literally a stone's throw from where I had been staying in the same little magical neighborhood. And I put the offer in on a house and flew back to San Francisco. And when I landed, realized the offer had been accepted and I was moving to Nashville. So wow. it all happened pretty quick, but um, I knew that I couldn't stay where I was. And this was the logical place in a lot of, for a lot of reasons. That's really interesting. You talked about your need or not need, but growing up, your family had a lot of structure and there was a lot of like expectations of normalcy in terms of like career stuff. And you go like the booking appointments to write songs is kind of a good combo of those things. But also you lost a writing partner and then you kind of gained other writing partners. Was that all like totally serendipitous? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I have to give credit to my management at the time for having the foresight to push me to go write with other people. Um, I was really into it. I love collaborative work. And, you know, it's it's funny. I think about like why I love collaborative work so much. And I'm like, I remember table groups being a really big thing in my elementary school. So I think, mm. you know, I was like trained to work in groups. I like working in groups. I love coming to a writing session with an idea and you know, riffing about it. And I just love talking to people. And I love talking to people who, I remember one of the writing sessions that I came on, um, this guy, Simon Gugela, who I have a couple of co-writes on to rise. You got to fall with him. I, I was driving to his house and I had one line in my head and it was like, why was I the last to know? And I was like, that's the song I want to write. And I walked in, I'd never met him before in my life. And, um, I told him, I said, I don't really have much, but I know that this is the title that I want. And he goes, okay, well tell me more about that. And I go, well, this might be TMI. And he goes, 
honey, you're in Nashville. There is no such thing as TMI. (laughs) And I remember being like, oh my God, I love you. I love this. So it was the perfect union of like, like you said, structure, but also, you know, creativity and processing. And um, I really needed help processing at the time. I was in uncharted territory for me. And so talking to other people about relationships and, you know, I think the best writing sessions, you don't even really know you're writing a song. You're just like talking about stuff. You're, you're processing stuff. And then somebody says something cool and you're like, Ooh, that was cool. Let's write that down. Mm -hmm. And since then I was just kind of hooked. Did you feel like when you went through the divorce, which I know is like complicated personally on, on hundreds of levels, but musically, like, did you feel like your identity as a musician was tied into that relationship because you had kind of started playing music with Tim and you, you had been, I guess, developed as a musician with, with someone else? Yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a lot of grief, um, and, and the grieving process on a lot of levels musically, you know, I just, I loved singing with Tim so much and I loved singing. I still love singing harmonies. Um, so for me, that was a big blow. Um, I didn't feel like my musical identity was wrapped up in Tim so much because it was always my band, but I did feel like it was hard to go on in that same format without Tim. It was a breaking point for me. I didn't feel like I was losing my identity, but I did feel like I had something really private to say and to write about. And I needed to do that on my own because it wasn't really a banned topic. It was like really personal. It was a really personal Mm -hmm. collection of songs because I was so deeply processing something that I was struggling so hard with. and, And I really was alone in that you know, that, that shift, that transition from kind of like a band mentality to going out on my own was really because the material was so personal. The process of putting the album together, was it totally different from anything you'd done before, just being in a different place and and working with different people? Totally. I mean, I really wanted to go into the studio. I, I had a lot of I'm not going to say trauma, but I had a lot of experience in the studio, um, where, you know, the dynamic wasn't always healthy and or it then became predictable, you know. So essentially what I'm trying to say is I wanted to go into the studio with a totally fresh slate, you know. Um, I think I've said this before, like I wanted to go into the studio carrying, you know, the only baggage I w- was carrying was the words on the page. Like I didn't want to know what people's reactions were going to be to the song. You know, when you know people so well, you're like, oh, I know what that person's going to say about this. You know, I just didn't want that. I, I wanted strangers and I needed that like anonymity almost um, mm-hmm. in an emotional way. Uh, and I really needed somebody who was going to take a strong leadership role as a producer. And Matt Rossbang just did it with flying colors. I mean, he was the perfect person and he got together such a great band. And, and, um, it was really the first time I had had fun recording. That's amazing. And how did you feel once the album was out there? Like, did it feel like you had turned a page musically, professionally? Like, what was that? What was that like? I mean, it was scary. It was really personal content and I had to look at it as service work. You know, I was like, okay, I know that this uh, was a really painful process for me, going through the divorce, changing my life, moving, all of the above. Um, and, you know, there it's an incredibly vulnerable place to be in and then to write about it and then to share it. 
So, you know, I couldn't really overthink it and I couldn't really take it on so much other than this is service work, meaning I can now take this record. And if other people are hurting, my biggest hope is that it reaches those ears. It, it wasn't really about anything other than that for me at that time. And it still is that way for me, that record, especially because my ego is pretty squashed. And I, I'm not sure if that's actually correct. I don't have uh, like a lot of, of musicians in front people, this really strong personality of like, this is, I'm the shit. And like, I'm, this is like, you know, I got this. When I think of it as service, it makes me feel much more comfortable being in the center, center stage and in the spotlight. I don't actually love being in the spotlight. I don't really love being the center of a band, which is why it was so fun. Like when I got to go out with the dusters and, you know, be a guest, or when I get to go play with Phil Lesh and I get to sing some songs or, you know, I would very happily, um, much more happily share the stage. So when I can look at at my music and and having to to be in the center, when I can look at that as service work, it's more comfortable for me. That's great. Have you heard reactions from fans like as you went out and played these songs or online? Are people seeing it that way or hearing it that way? I think so. I remember I got one review and of course, you know, you always listen to the reviews that are the bad ones. It's like, you know, I finish a show and like the only thing I can focus on is what I messed up. And it's sort of that way with, with reviews. And I won't say the outlet that said it, but you know, they, they alluded to like, Oh, it's like, you know, reading her journal or, you know, certain record labels passing because it was too sad. Um, which personally I think is bullshit because we all need the spectrum, right? Yeah. Like we're all going yeah. through something at a certain time and not every record needs to be happy summertime driving down the highway. It's like, sometimes we're all in a dark place and we need, we need assistance in that. And that can be really helpful to people who are going through something similar, like you said. Yeah. And I did find that, you know, when I would go out on the road and I'd be at the merch table, a lot of, a lot of appreciation, a lot of, um, commiseration, a lot of thanks. And interestingly enough, as more and more time goes by and more people find the record, I still get, I still get genuine connection from, from people who seem to connect with, with the songs because they're going through something hard. But also like part of it is just being open about what you're experiencing as opposed to like, you could write the same songs in a much more abstract way or try to, you know, metaphors or however, there's something about the connection, I think, to like raw feelings that captures people, you know? Totally. Um, and you can't and, really replace that. Yeah. And as we evolve as writers too, you know, it's like, oh, maybe I could have tucked that in a little bit more maybe. But at that time, that wasn't how I was writing and, and that's yeah. okay. And I think that, you know, writing a good song is really hard and I'm not even sure I've done it yet, but I'm not going to stop trying. You know, that is like, that's the goal, right? Of my life is to have a song that outlives me. And if I can do one of those, awesome. And if I can't, well, I tried. <laughs> but I'll die trying. Can we talk about collaborations real quick? Sure. Just because you mentioned the String Dusters and, and Phil Lesh. You mentioned growing up listening to the dead and getting to play with members of the dead. Like that must have been a, an interesting full circle moment for you. 
Yeah, it was. Um, and it still is. I mean, when I get to be in their presence, I I'm still in awe. Um, I have so much respect. Um, I've spent the most time with Phil Lesh, who is just really an incredible human and, um, his work ethic and his commitment to music and his commitment to uh, embracing and elevating the next generation of musicians, I think is really remarkable. Yeah, it was definitely, it was crazy. I remember the first time I was on stage with him, I think we were at the Fillmore and I was sitting in, uh, my friend Jackie Green was playing a show and I just remember standing next to Phil and being like, my brother is going to be so jealous that I'm on stage <laughs> with Phil right now. Uh, and it kind of became this, this joke, um, but it kept happening and it kept happening. And I, I sure hope that it keeps happening. Cause I, I just love, um, I love that music so much and it means a lot to me. And um, I love Phil and, and, and the people affiliated with that music and, and the fans. And it's just a very loving community. And I felt very grateful to be a part of it. I feel like there's so much mystery around what makes the dead so, you know, magical for people. What did you observe? What do you think it is? I think a lot of it is like the hardships, you know, you know, they've, they've gone through a really, really long journey and it's been full of darkness and light and turmoil and reckoning. And, you know, I think for me, I have an admiration of, you know, people putting the music first. I love that, that they all, you know, allow it to live on in their own ways. Um, and they do it, you know, how they can right now um, and in formats mm -hmm. that feel good to them, but they haven't stopped. And I just really respect and admire that. I mean, I think Jerry passing away way too soon has made him a bit of, you know, a, I'm not going to say godlike, but, you know, he's certainly like a, a spirit and I think there's just a lot of lore around, around all of that and the stories and, you know, his sort of like non-confrontational approach to life. And, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's just, I, I think just the stories, the stories, and then also the projection and the, and the, the, the folklore. I, I, I really do think that, you know, in a hundred years, there will be like proper folklore about the Grateful Dead. Yeah, for sure. It lives on and it's like it's taking on multiple lives of its own, even as time goes on, you know, even more of the, yeah, the legends continue to grow, which is, which is wild. And the String Dusters, I was saying that I saw you play with them in DC. How did that come together? And what was that like for you musically? We had just been friends for a long time, um, you know, from touring. They took me on one, I think one of my first tours as like a support band and then years later, they put out Ladies and Gentlemen, which was um, a really beautiful record where they were the band. And then they asked a bunch of different female artists to sing the songs. And I was one of those female artists. And um, I was kind of at that transitional period in my life uh, back in 2017, where I was making some changes. And um, it was sort of just like the perfect time. They said, hey, do you want to come and tour this record with us? Um, jump on the bus and, you know, sing some of these songs off Ladies and Gentlemen. And I was like, absolutely, I would love to. I love that record so much. I love, you know, the writing on that. And I just thought it was really cool that they wrote for other people to sing and for women to sing. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge like Linda Ronstadt fan. And I love, um, you know, the way that she's able to interpret other people's song and bring songs to life. And I, I think for me at the time, it felt really good to sing other people's songs. Um, and also just, I love bluegrass and 
Like they're so good. They're so good at stupid. And to be in their company was, I, I mean, I was totally flattered and inspired and they pushed me and, um, I came at it, you know, as professionally as I could. And, um, it really kind of like made me step up my game, you know? And for me, that's what it's like all about, right? Like being around people who push you and being around people who make you better. And they definitely did that for me. Um, the level of professionalism they bring to, to the road and to their music and to their shows was just so inspiring. And, um, man, what a, what a fun year that was. I love playing with them. I do it anytime. Yeah. Their shows are really special. I mean, I'm biased cause I, I just love them and I think they're insanely talented. They're badass. Um, yeah. 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 Um, so what have you been doing over the past, I guess it's almost been a year now since we're no touring and we're not allowed to do anything. Um, <laughs> what, <laughs> what have you been doing with your time creatively? Like how has that experience been for you? Um, you know, it's interesting. So at the top of the year, I actually had to get a surgery, um, that put me, was going to put me out for like two months. And so at first I was like really bummed. I had to push all my shows and then slowly, you know, as the pandemic began to reveal itself and its severity, I realized everybody was kind of on bed rest with me. And so that kind of like softened my own blow of like, not getting to play. So at first I was kind of like, okay, everybody's kind of taking a break and I'll write and I'll read. And I was supposed to do a tour in May where I was going to go out and do the beat goes on Nikki Bloom sing share because yeah. I was in between record cycles. And I was like, I want to just do something fun. I had a bunch of shows booked and um, that idea popped up and of course it was canceled. So one of the projects that I did in 2020 during the pandemic was to make a virtual album of share songs. So we did that and we chose, I think, seven or eight share songs and created a virtual album and um, kind of tied it into my story um, uh, of 2020 and my move and, and the surgery and all that. And, you know, just uh, reflected on, on the year and we released that in November and that was really fun. And we did a live show, um, streamed it live from the five spot here in Nashville. And that was really fun. Um, I released a Christmas EP and a couple Christmas music videos and just writing, really getting ready to get back in the studio um, and record this year. So looking forward to, I've got about 30 songs, I think, um, in my Dropbox folder wow. and getting ready to sift through and make the next record. Did you enjoy doing the the virtual performances? I mean, I guess they're kind of necessary right now, but just as someone who's used to playing in front of people, what, did you like it? What was it like? You know, so when all this started, it was kind of like everybody started doing these virtual shows and whatever, anything from sitting in front of your iPhone and playing alone to, you know, in doing like a variety show or all different kinds of things. And I did a couple by myself, um, you know, sitting in front of the iPhone or whatever. I did a couple and I just felt weird. It, it, I felt weird. It's hard not knowing how it's coming through, how it's coming across technically. Is it sounding right? Is it sounding good? Am I clipping? Am I pausing? You know, I just, yeah, you can't see anyone's reaction it, you can't, you don't know how people are no. taking it in. And it just ended up making me feel kind of like anxious. But mm -hmm. when we went to the five spot and we set up and I had the band and we were rehearsed, 
and there was like cameras and I didn't have to worry about the technical part of it. It was fun as hell. It was so fun. I mean, it was like, oh my God, yes. Okay. We're back. I got a band. We got a set mm-hmm. list. I mean, mm-hmm. it was so fun. I, I think that I um, can appreciate the the reality of, of what's happening and certainly admire. I mean, my boyfriend, he's in the band of heathens and they do, they just did week 40 of their good time supper club last night, which is a mm-hmm. variety show. And I mean, I respect the shit out of, you know, bands that are working really hard and, and keeping their online presence. Um, it just, for me, it was a little bit more challenging to do, but I, I feel like I, I dipped my toe in and I will continue to do so, you know, if this continues to go on, but it's not my favorite platform. And there's a lot of people doing it, you know, I feel a little overwhelmed by the amount of information coming through the World Wide Web and it's a lot. Yeah, I think for music fans too, like at the beginning, it was like all the artists that you love, you know, would, would do something. And then like, then everyone started doing it. And now there's like just music wise, let alone all the other information. Like it's, there's a lot, there's many streaming things happening at all times. Yes. You know, which is, which is hard. Yeah. I feel like you've taken sort of like a, an unplanned route to getting to where you are as a musician. And I've asked other people this, but I'm curious to your answer. If you had to tell the, the Nikki of 20 years ago, something or give some advice, what would you say? I mean, I would say the same thing that I'm saying now to myself, which is like, be authentic, you know, make it feel good, make sure it feels right. I don't want to ever force anything. The essence I think is like, I don't ever want to like need this, you know, like I don't like need to do this. I want to do this. As long as I keep wanting to do this, then I'm going to do this. And for me, that's, that's being authentic, which is why, you know, whatever critics of my last record who said it was too personal or, or whatever, it's like, that's okay. That's okay. That doesn't deter me from keeping on doing this because I'm not going to make that record again, because that was then I can't really detach myself from my art. Like I am my art and that makes it hard in a way because it can feel really personal. But for me, that's what makes it interesting. And that's what makes it authentic. Thank you for that. All right. Well, people should stick around because they're going to hear music from Nikki. But Nikki, thank you so much for taking time to chat. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Now here's Nikki playing Jet Plane, To Rise You Gotta Fall, and the first public performance of Love to Spare. Hello. Hello. I'm Nikki Bloom. Um, coming at you from Nashville, Tennessee with Jesse Wilson. We're going to do three songs. We'll start with an old song, one from the past, um, from my second album, Driftwood. It's called Jet Plane. Thank you. 
Moving from the past into the somewhat present, um, we're going to do one off of my most recent release, To Rise, You Gotta Fall, and um, we'll do the title track. It's accompanied by our dog chomping on a bone back there, but it's better than her jumping on us or barking. Must I? Yeah. Mm.
moving into the future. This is an unrecorded song called Love Despair. And thanks for the interview. I'm Nikki Bloom. This is Jesse Wilson from the Band of Heathens and other things. Take it easy. Take care. Be safe. Stay well. Mwah. Ciao. Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love.